Welcome to the Young Businessmen of Tulsa podcast. At the Young Businessmen of Tulsa, our mission is focused on connecting, developing, and inspiring young business leaders to find and pursue their purpose. This podcast is sponsored by Trost Marketing. Promoting your business through marketing is essential for growth. Without marketing, you lack the ability to create a conversation with your potential customers. At Trost Marketing, we provide marketing solutions that fuel growth. We are your source for all of your printing needs, as well as branded apparel and promotional items. If your business wants to stand out to potential customers, contact the marketing experts at Trost Marketing. Visit us at trostmarketing.com or call us at 866-492-7820. Welcome, young business leaders. Welcome to another exciting podcast. I'm your host, Evan Utaki, and I want to welcome you to a bonus podcast. This is a podcast from the Young Businessmen of Tulsa Luncheon uh, for January. The speaker was Jay Stevens, and if that name sounds familiar, Jay was on the podcast, uh, podcast number 101. So if you want to listen to some of the information from him there, uh, you can also tune in to uh, his talk today where he talks about uh, his leadership journey and also talks about the importance of culture in his business. So let's tune in and listen to Jay's message to young business leaders. I want to talk today about culture. Can everybody hear me okay? I want to talk about culture and it starts back when I was 10 years old. I went to a fantastic summer camp, and at this summer camp, they stressed three things. Number one, make your bed every day. Hospital corners, the whole works. The second thing that I heard over and over and over again was, you don't have to, you get to. And the third thing that was repeated over and over and over again actually came from uh, a man named Bill Lance. I think he taught um, cross-country in, in uh, one of the Tulsa public schools. But they took this saying from him and they repeated it over and over again. And the saying went like this, God first, the other guy second, and I'm third. So this camp revolved around these three things. Make your bed, you don't have to, you get to, and I'm third. Now what, were, what was the camp trying to do? What was the camp trying to do? They were trying to create and maintain a certain culture. Right? Think about it. They're creating discipline when they say make your bed every day. You actually got graded on making your bed. Can you imagine a 10 year old trying to figure out, how, you know, how do I make my bed to, to make a grade? And then they, they took away your shyness or your timidity by saying you don't have to, you get to. And for a 10-year-old, that's really important. All of a sudden, I wasn't scared to try something new. I almost looked forward to it. And then they were creating an attitude of humility and, and unselfishness when they would say over and over again, God's first, the other guy's second, and I'm third. So when you're in a four-week summer camp and you get that every day, it makes an impression. And that impression has stuck with me all these years. So I want to talk for the next few minutes about intentionally creating the culture that you want. I'm going to tell you how I learned about culture. 
I'm going to talk about how we established our culture at SCFM, how our culture got tested, and the rewards of having a great culture. So are you with me? Let's just jump into this. Culture's always interested me ever since that summer camp. Now let's define culture. Here's how I would define it. The shared attitudes, values, and behaviors that characterize an organization. Attitudes, values, and behaviors. When I was in the military, one of my assignments was to go to the, the Army's Organizational Effectiveness School. Now what that school did was it took officers and trained them to be consultants to commanding generals across the world at, Ar at, at Army military bases. So I, th I think to this day I'm still the youngest captain that got selected to that school. But that's where I learned about organizational dynamics and when I where I learned about culture. I, uh, I left that school and came back to Fort Sill and served as the chief consultant to the commanding general for a couple of years. And I worked with army organizations of up to 3,000 down to 15, talking about organizational dynamics, organizational effectiveness, and culture. And I did that for two years. And I've, I've done that as a civilian ever since. How many of you have heard the name Peter Drucker? Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker was probably the best-known management consultant in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. For 40 years, he was the guy to go to if you wanted help with your organization. And he made a statement. I got introduced to this in this school that I went to in California for organizational effectiveness. He made this statement. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. What did he mean by that? Here's what he meant. You can have the best business plan, you can have the best strategies, but if you don't have the culture to support that, it won't matter. That's what he meant. And I've seen this happen both in and out of the Army ever since I went through that school. I've literally had six different careers. Evan talked a little bit about that. That part's true. I spent time in um, the military, small businesses, large corporations, ministry, the legal field, and teaching. And culture has been pivotal in every one of those career paths. And I've come across good cultures and bad cultures. So, I've been asked to speak or write about culture from time to time. And here's something that always struck me. When it came time for me to give examples of great culture, I always had to go to the military or the sports fields for good examples. I could never come up with, I, in my experience, could never come up with a business or corporation that I thought had a great culture. Now, isn't that funny? Doesn't that seem sad to you? It's, it's bothered me uh, for the majority of my adult life. 
I had to go to sports teams or the military to find examples of great organizational culture. Now, there's, I'll grant you that in sports and in the military, you've got a little bit different training situation and a little bit different maintenance situation. For example, there's something in the way that sports teams and military teams work together and train together and how they're taught certain values and attitudes and behaviors that they are compelled to follow. And there's, there's ways in which military units and sports teams get tested that typically businesses don't get tested in that way. I mean, you don't, you don't lose a coworker every day you know, to a, to, to a bullet or to a blown out knee or something like that if you're talking about football. So I'll grant you that sports and military is slightly different than the business world, but I'm still disappointed that it's hard to come up with good examples of, of organizational culture in the business world. And I think that's something you guys need to talk about and work on and develop in the business world. I certainly have done that. Another thing that the sports and military realms do that a lot of times in business uh, we don't experience is in the military and in sports, you lose almost as much as you win. And so there's something about losing together. It's interesting. It's an interesting dynamic. But there's something about losing together that either blows a team up or brings it closer together. So that leads me to a key observation. And I want to kick this whole talk off by saying this. When things are going well, just think about your company or your business. When things are going well, we either don't worry about culture or we assume that our culture is fine. Bill Gates made a statement. He said, success is a lousy teacher. I want to parallel that remark by saying, prosperity and good times are not a good measure of how good your culture is. When things are going well, you assume you've got a good culture. But until it's tested, you really won't know. So I came to SCFM in 2009. I am uh, in my 10th year. That's hard to believe, isn't it? 2009. And that's a God story in how I even, I mean, I have no experience in oil and gas. How in the world I got to SCFM is, uh, is a total God story. But I wanted to be, uh, you know, I, I've, I've had good culture wherever I've worked. Tried to set up and maintain a good culture. But when you're just influencing um, a few people, in a legal department or, or, or something like that. That's one thing. To implement it company-wide is, is another thing. And I, when I first came to SCFM, I wanted to be intentional about implementing a great culture. So I came and I, I decided there was, I was going to be intentional in my transition. Now, as you know, if you've been in the business world for a while, anytime you've got a change in management, especially the CEO, it's going to have an impact on the company's dynamic. I guarantee you, there's no way around it. If you, have, if, you, if you have a new manager, it changes the whole dynamic of the organization. If you've got a new CEO, it, you know, it's, it's compounded. So I set out to be very intentional about how, 
how we were going to implement an intentional culture. So I decided, here's what I've got to do. I've got to figure out what, uh, what, where the company is right now and what the culture is right now. So I got my partners together. I said, hey, I need to do some things to kind of transition on, onto the team. Uh, are you okay with that? Sure, be happy to. So I, I started interviewing everybody, not everybody, about half the people in the company. At that point in time, SCFM was 60 people. And I interviewed probably 25, 26, something like that. And I, I, I sat them down, I sat, each person I sat down, and I said, I'm just going to ask you three questions. And I want you to talk to me about them. And, um, and I am going to present the data that you give me back to the company in 30 days. But I will not attach your name to it. So it's all going to be confidential, but I am going to take the data and share it with the company. So here were the three questions that I asked. What's going well? Talk to me about what's going well right now. What's not going so well? And the final question was, what needs my immediate attention? I'm new to the organization. I'm just coming in. What do you think I need to know or work on immediately? You can imagine the data that I got, 25, 26 people. And I took all that data and I aggregated it. For each question, I, I, all the answers that I got. What's going well? All 26 people, 26 responses to that. What's not going so well? Same thing. What needs my immediate attention? Same thing. Now, you start seeing commonalities, right? So, out of 26 that answered what's going well, probably seven or eight answers. In other words, people repeated the same thing. They, they were seeing the same thing. What's not going so well? What's, what needs my immediate attention? I aggregated all that, and 30 days later, I presented that to the whole company. Here's what, here's what you told me. No names attached. And in doing this exercise, I was trying to accomplish a couple of things. Number one, honor my promise to keep everything confidential. That, that gets trust. Show them I was serious about addressing things that needed to be addressed. And giving them an attaboy for the things that are going well. And congratulating and appreciating that. I, I, at, that, at that meeting, we looked at all the commonalities and the responses and we developed a 90-day plan to address the things that weren't going so well and the things that needed my immediate attention. And 90 days later, we had another company meeting and we reported back, here's, what's, here's, what, here's the progress that's being made on all these things. So even that has a lasting impression. I'm a man of my word. I said in 90 days we'd be doing this, and we did it. So that went well, and obviously there were some things that needed to be worked on. But I got a sense of where the culture was. And now it was time to create the culture we wanted to have. So again, I sat down with my two partners, and I said, hey, listen, you guys are believers. I'm a believer. I'd like for us to be a little bit more intentional about what we do here. I'd like to take our Christian faith and mix it right in with everything that we do. And they were totally on board with that, which I appreciated. 
I said, Here, here's, here's kind of what I'd like to do. I'd like for the three of us to put on paper what, what our expectations are for everybody and what our expectations are for the company. And then I want to get the, the managers together and talk about what they expect and what they, what they want to work on. And then I want to just get our, our, our co-workers that are not managers and talk about, have something that talks about what their responsibilities are every day. And so we develop a, a set of expectations and a set of behaviors and a set of attitudes. And, and I, I said to my two partners who said, yeah, let's do this. This will be great. I made this statement. Okay, guys, this is great. This will be fun, but get ready because we're going to get our hands dirty. When you, when, you, when you try to put a culture out there and get everybody to buy into it, as they buy into it, now they're, they're a part of the family, and their problems become your problems. And, and it's, it's a whole different way to look at business. But I hope to convince you it's the best way. So here's what we said as, as owners, our key concepts. God owns this business. We're a family, and we're going to treat each other like family. And our business is our, collectively and individually, way of doing kingdom ministry here on earth. Does that make sense? If you're, if you're in the audience and you're not a Christian, just bear with me because I can make this make sense whether you're a Christian or not. So God owns our business. We're a family. We're going to treat each other like that. And our business is our way of doing kingdom work and glorifying God. That was put all over the company. Signs with that stuff on it. And one of my partners put it this way. I thought this was beautiful, the way he put it. He goes, you know, it's, it feels to me like we want to build great products that help our clients, and we want to grow old with our people, and then we want to spend eternity in heaven with them. Now, how many, how many times have you heard an owner say it that way? But that told me he was totally on board with this. Let's make good products that help our clients. Let's be a family here at work while we're here on earth. And let's live so that we can spend eternity together. You ever look at your coworker like that? That changes your whole perception of everybody that you work with. So here's what we did. We implemented that. Every weekly leadership team meeting had a part on the agenda that was devoted to culture. The leadership team read a book a month on culture, and we started with, how many of you have heard of Patrick Lencioni? Patrick Lencioni, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Get that book. And take your leadership team and go through every chapter of that book. It is eye-opening. When you hear Lencioni say, disagreement is fundamentally important to an organization. People being able to speak up and disagree, that builds trust. We, we developed this saying, everybody has their say. Not everybody has their way, but everybody, everybody has their say. 
We posted signs everywhere. My wife and I sat down and we decided, by the way, raise your hand, Karen, my wife. We decided we'd have every employee of the company over to our house for dinner that first year. And we built and reinforced our culture until it gained critical mass. I think even to this day, my, in my 10th year with the company, my number one job is culture. That's my number one job. Now that we were all engaged and, and, we, were, and we were going down the right road, I had to, I wanted to set an example. I wanted to pour myself into a couple of people in the company so that I could be at the forefront of implementing this, but also so that other people could look around. So um, I, I picked out three people. I'll tell you about them. The first one was our HR manager. Actually, the first hire that I made after I got there. Uh, our HR manager was different than everybody else in the company. Not in a bad way. But where, you know, I'm surrounded by engineers. Anybody know engineers? Okay. A lot of them are introverted rebels. Uh, I was surrounded by this, these, these, these engineers. And... Um, our shop guys are the same way. They're not engineers, but they're laser focused on equipment and machinery. I put it this way. You'll, you'll get this. I never met an engineer that wouldn't walk right by a living, breathing human being to go look at a piece of machinery. <laughs> it's, it's, that's the way it is. That's just the way they're wired. So she wasn't wired that way. I wasn't either. So she wasn't wired that way. But, you know, it, it made, it, she kind of counterbalanced all these introverted rebels. Here was the interesting thing about my HR manager. She was an atheist. So I sat down with her and I said, Shelly, listen, we love you. You're doing a great job. We're happy with, with uh, you being a part of the company. I said, but here's what we're getting ready to roll out. We're going to roll out a very intentional Christian culture here in the company. And you're kind of the face of the organization to the outside world in many respects, especially to new employees. So I got to know that you're okay with that, that you can live in that culture, that you can operate in that culture. And here's what she said to me, Jay, I don't understand the Jesus thing. But who wouldn't want to be a part of a company that's trying to be what, what you've talked about? So I mean, I said, you're in? She said, I'm in. I'm totally in. The next person I talked to was our shop manager. Randy was um, a guy that everybody in the organization looked up to. I mean, I could tell when I was doing my interviews that Randy was kind of the guy Everybody went to him for advice. Everybody looked up to Randy. And for some reason, Randy took an interest in me. He began to come by the office asking me how I was doing. He would say, hey, did you understand what we were talking about the other day uh, about this such and such project? And I said, I had no idea what you guys were talking about. He goes, well, here, let me explain it to you. Randy would pour into me, and I decided I would pour into him. But there was something that bugged me about Randy. Um, Randy had erratic hours. I could go down to the shop and Randy wouldn't be there different times during the day. It wasn't a pattern, 
but he just he was just gone. Uh, Randy would come to work having not shaved. He wasn't trying to grow a beard. He just didn't he just didn't shave. He'd go for a couple of days and not shave. And he would fall asleep during leadership team meetings. Now you can imagine that, that would bother me a little bit. But I did a little bit of detective work <clears throat> and I found this out. Randy's wife had MS. Do you know about do you know what MS is? Multiple sclerosis? Um, I didn't know, I, I knew of it. I mean, even as a company, we did the MS walk every year and we supported uh, the MS Society uh, with charitable contributions, but I really didn't know about MS. And so Randy said, listen, Jay, when I got married 20 years ago to my wife, and one year into our marriage, she came down with MS. And he said, she has, she has lost over time the functions of everything in her body except her right hand. For some reason, her right hand still works. But he goes, I can't afford somebody to come in and care for her. So my, my day is I come into work and I go back to check on her mid-morning. I go back to check on her mid-afternoon. Um, I get off of work and I go home and I take care of my wife. She, can't, she can barely feed herself. She can't, she can't go to the toilet by herself. She can't do anything for herself. So that's my life. That, that caused me to pause and think. So I called a nurse. I found a nurse who, who I made an appointment with, and she came out to the, the company and talked with me and a couple other people, and she said something that was chilling to me. She said, i, I got to be honest with you. We lose the caretaker before the patient in a lot of MS cases. And that, that oh, that was a jolt. So I sat down with my two partners and I said, we've got to do something to help this guy. This, this guy's all alone with this. And we're family. Remember, we all bought into this. We've got to do something to help him. So we, we, we paid for somebody to come in on Saturdays and Sundays and watch Pam so that Randy could actually go out and, and do something fun on Saturday. And he said, you know, I'd like to get back in church, but I, I, I don't have the time. I can't do it. Well, we took that excuse away. So um, I, I was ignorant about MS, but I, I studied up on it, and, I, and we decided to do some things. We got a bed with a, a mo you know, the beds that rise up and go back down and stuff. We got one of those for him because his wife would say, hey, I, could you move me? And, um, and, and with the bed, he, obviously he could. And then the final person that I decided to pour myself into was just one of our shop guys. Uh, James came to us as a temp, but he was such a hard worker and he took such great initiative that the managers raved about him. I mean, he just was fantastic. And then we found out that James didn't have a driver's license. So I said to the shop manager, I said, he can't, we can't let him drive back and forth to work. We can't condone him driving without a license. And somebody said, well, what are we going to do? I said, well, he's going to have to find a ride. I mean, if we want to keep him, and you guys do want to keep him, then you've got to figure out how to get him to and from work, which they figured out. We then, we then learned that James had a bunch of unpaid traffic tickets. And because he didn't pay them, they took his license away. That was in Texas. Anybody have some wilder, wilder years in their, in their, well, you guys are all young people. Okay. 
But you remember the time when rules and responsibilities were not all that important to you. James went through that. So I got somebody together. I got one of my administrative people. I said, would you sit down with James and go through the driver's license book, all the laws and stuff around driving. Obviously, he knows how to drive. Let's just, let's just, let's just um, get him prepared for taking the driver's license exam again. We paid off all his traffic tickets, and um, we worked on that problem. James admitted to a drinking problem. And so we, uh, we sent him through alcohol and drug counseling. So, so far, so good. We, we've implemented the culture. I'm pouring myself into three people. Uh, my other people in the company are pouring themselves into each other. And um, business is good. Culture's getting traction. What more could we ask for? Well, we got, we got a lot that we didn't ask for. In 2013, I don't know if you remember, but in 2013, the Saudis... Uh, decided to increase production, and they drove the price of oil down to about $30 a barrel after it had been going for $90 a barrel. As you can imagine, that just stopped the oil and gas industry almost completely. And what that did for us is we lost about $28 million worth of deals overnight. Overnight. At the same time, our top salesperson fell in her garage, hit her head on the concrete, and sustained a concussion that could have killed her. We learned that only 10% of people that had this kind of concussion ever make it back. Now, she's made it back, but she was out for 20 months. 20 months. We lost three significant deals with a value of $28.7 million. We lost our top salesperson. Our best client decided to halt production tanking those deals. Our second best client decided to close down two plants and stop production, and that tanked a few more deals. And so SCFM, uh, which had been cutting a fat hog, remember, remember that saying? Cutting a fat hog when the, when the industry's up. All of a sudden, um, annual revenues of 20 to 25 million, we made just $5 million in 2013, and only $1 million in 2014 and zero in 2015. So we ended 2013 with a, with a huge layoff. I laid off everybody but 17 people. I went from 60 to 17 right before Christmas. We went another few months and I had to lay off 10 more. So by June of 2014, we had gone from 60 down to seven, and three of those were the owners. We had four employees and three owners. Everybody had to learn a lot of different things. I became the worst HR manager you've ever known. <laughs> I became a passable but not very good finance and accounting guy. And uh, the biggest humiliation of all is I redid the company's website. Can you imagine that? I'm no website builder. But we all bought into the notion we got to wear two or three hats because there's only seven of us. So we quit taking paychecks. Our shop was dark, no work. The three owners, in order to pay the four employees we had, we quit taking paychecks. And um, that was through 2014, 2015, 
2015 and part of 2016. We leased out office space and shop space just to bring in some money. Everybody wore a bunch of different hats. We, um, we did keep in touch with all our former employees, though. And, and I will say this. When we laid off our mass layoffs in, at, at, around Christmas time in 2013, all of us that stayed got on the phone and we found every person we laid off, we found them a job. Every single person. So here we are in 2016. No business. No paychecks for the owners. My cash projections had us running out of funds by the fall. This would have been February. I mean, running out of funds. We'd already loaned the company all the money we had. So the company would run out of funds. The owners would run out of funds. It was it. We were done by the fall. So it's February of 2016, and I walk into, I'm walking by one of my partner's offices and the other partner's in there, and I said, I said, hey, guys, let's have a prayer. We had started praying three or four times, the seven of us that were left. We'd get together in somebody's office or in the lobby, and we would pray. We would hold hands and pray day after day after day. And so I'm walking by one of their offices and the other partner's there, and I said, hey, let's, let's get together for another prayer. And one of them looked at me and said, Jay, I'm all prayed out. And the other one looked at me and said, I am too. And I walked back to my office feeling lower than a snake's belly. I thought, man, it's, it's, whew, we're in, we're in bad shape. <clears throat> Little did we know, this is the way it always is. Little did we know God was working behind the scenes. We get a call, this is in February, we get a call in March from a guy that my partners had worked with 30 years ago, hadn't seen him for 30 years. And he calls and he says, hey, I'm, power, I'm part of a power uh, plant expansion in Bayonne, New Jersey. And he goes, we just had a project meeting on this, and the guy who buys gas compression, that's what we do, the guy who buys gas compression said he's not going to buy it from the incumbents, he wants a whole new gas compression provider. And he said, I thought, I thought about you guys. So I thought I'd call you. And we said, we sure appreciate it. My sales guy, one of the four employees, called them the next day, talked to him about our gas compression, talked to him about our company, and he said, I'd love to fly out and see your facility. Now, our facility was dark. There was no work at all on the floor. And we were down to seven employees. We didn't want him to fly out to our facility. So we suggested, why don't you fly out to our manufacturer of compressors and let's look at their facility because that's, we're going to package what they, uh, you know, we're going to package everything around their compressors. And he said, okay, that sounds good. That'll be fine. So we met him the next weekend at the compressor manufacturing company, and that went well. He went back to his office, and we started negotiations. And negotiations ended in May, and we signed a deal for $6 million. But that's not all. A peer of this guy, a peer of his, that works for a whole other organization, called him and said, hey, I, I'm doing a power plant expansion in Argentina and I need compression. 
Do you know anybody? And he goes, I, I, I certainly do. We're going to use them for our project. And he goes, well, tell me who they are, and, and I'm going to call them. So we gave him all the information. This guy called us and said, hey, I want to order some compression. Okay, it's not really how it works usually, but um, can you guys get started? Well, we need a PO. And he goes, oh, it'll take my admin group three weeks to get a PO, and I need you to start working on it now. Okay, but uh, we can't work for free. And he goes, what's your, what's your bank account number? I will wire you money. He wired us $3 million that afternoon. Now, this guy, this guy has never met us. He's never seen our compression. He doesn't know who we are. And after one phone call, he wires us $3 million. Now, we opened a bottle of champagne that day, my friends. Um, we opened a bottle of champagne. So that deal was $5 million. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, things started. A month before, I was lower than a snake's belly. Now I'm opening a champagne bottle. Okay. And, and it was because God had been working behind the scenes for who, who knows how long. We were making a, com a comeback. At a time during the preceding three and a half years, we could have played the blame game. Let me tell you something. It would have been really easy for a lot of us to point our finger at sales or point our finger at this guy or that person and play the blame game. We didn't do that. We didn't do that. Our culture kept us together even when the chips were down because it was intentional and we enforced it and we lived it out. Now, being a Christ, having a Christ-centered culture is not without its tests and trials. I'm going to wrap this up in just a second. I'm just saying this. If you decide you want to implement a faith-based culture in your company, be prepared. What's the old saying? There's not a testimony without a test. There's not a testimony without a test. We got tested. We got tested. And we, and we made it. Now, I want to wrap this up by telling you the, the rewards of a great culture. Obviously, there are some monetary rewards if you have a great culture. That, that's obvious. I don't need to talk about that. But money comes and money goes. I want to talk to you about the rewards of a great culture that don't have anything to do with money. Do you remember that shop guy, James, that I decided to pour into that didn't have his, didn't have his driver's license, had all these traffic tickets, and admitted to a, a drug and alcohol problem? We sent him through drug and alcohol counseling, and guess who paid for it? The atheist HR manager, out of her own pocket, $800, so this guy could go through drug and alcohol counseling. Do you remember the shop manager that I poured into that had a wife with, with MS? He started going back to church, and Karen will remember this. One Saturday, he calls, calls the house and says, hey, uh, Jay, what are you and Karen doing tomorrow morning? Well, we're, we're going to church. Well, would you come go to church with me? Sure, what's up? He goes, well, I've decided to give my life to Christ and I'm going to get baptized tomorrow and I want you guys there. How do you say no to that? Now, 
Randy became a champion of our culture because he saw how it worked. Pam passed away in 2017, and Randy, Randy called me and said, would you do Pam's funeral? I said, I'd be happy to. He said, Jay, you're the only pastor she's had in the last 20 years, and she would want you to take, to take care of the funeral. You remember the guy without the driver's license? Came to my office. I have an open-door policy. He came to my office and knocked on my door one day and said, Jay, can I, can I come in? I said, sure, come on in, James. He pulls out his driver's license. He says, I got my driver's license today. Gave me a big old hug. Fantastic. Maybe the epitome of it was when we got all those projects in mid-2016. Remember I said we got a $6 million, here, million dollar deal here, a $5 million deal in Argentina, and all of a sudden we needed people back in the shop to build these units. We made a list of people that we needed, bare bones group of people that we needed to come back, seven or eight people. We called every one of them, and every one of them left full-time jobs with benefits to come temp for us to build those units. I don't think that happens unless you've got a great culture. So the benefits of having a great culture are not just monetary. They are memories and interactions and friendships and blessings that will last far beyond this life and go into the next life. And that's the best reward of all. Thank you. Young businessmen, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about the young businessmen of Tulsa, check out our website at www.ybtok.com or email us at ybtoklahoma at gmail.com. If you live in the Tulsa area and would like to hear one of our great speakers live at our monthly luncheon, we meet on the second Monday of every month from 12 to 1 p.m. Like us on Facebook for details about locations and upcoming speakers. Lastly, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes and share us with your friends. Thank you for tuning in to the Young Businessmen of Tulsa podcast, where we connect, develop, and inspire young businessmen to find and pursue their purpose.